Welcome to the Sales Development Podcast, your trusted resource for the latest strategies, tactics, and tips on running a high-performance sales development program. Sales development has grown to become a critical part of the success of high-growth companies, and we dive in each week on how to specifically make your program successful and accelerate your career advancement. Subscribe at iTunes, YouTube, and jump on the newsletter over at 10pound.com to make sure you never miss an episode. Hello, 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 everybody. Welcome to another edition of the Sales Development Podcast. I am joined today with Cameron Harold, the author of Free PR, How to Get Chased by the Press Without Hiring a PR Firm, along with a plethora of other really interesting books that I want to talk about and running you know, your own firm. Cameron, thank you so much for joining us today on the Sales Development Podcast. Hey, David. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. You know, I want to dive in. You've got such an interesting background in what you're doing right now and definitely dive into this book. It's so, you know, it's game changing for anyone. It blew my mind. But if the audience is not familiar with your work, tell us about yourself and how you got into this line of profession. Sure. I I was groomed as an entrepreneur. My father and grandparents all ran their own companies. So they groomed the three of us, my brother and sister and I, to all be entrepreneurs. And we've all run our own companies from the last 15 to 25 years. I did a talk that's on the main TED website called Raising Entrepreneurial Kids. And then I have built a few companies. When I was, I guess, 35, I joined a company called 1-800-GOT-JUNK. And I came in as the 14th employee when I left six and a half years later, we had 3,100 employees system-wide, and I'd been the chief operating officer of that growth. So we got sort of getting known for some successes, but then people realized that was the fourth company that I'd built. So they started kind of looking at me going like, wait a second, like, how do you know how to do this? And, and I just started to coach real companies globally. I've coached, you know, grasshopper.com, Media Temple, iContacts. I coached the CEO and the second command at Sprint. So I've worked with real companies, real businesses globally. And then I've done paid speaking events now in 26 countries on six continents. So that just started to get me the, the recognition that I knew what I was doing and knew what I was talking about. And then a couple of the speakers bureaus asked me to codify some of my business ideas and put them into a book. And I, I wrote a book that was originally called Double. And then Seth Godin, who actually wrote the front cover testimonial for the book, said, no, it's really a double-double because you're teaching companies how to double their revenue and profit. That was my first book, Double Double. And then I've since written four others. I wrote Meetings Suck, which is for every employee at every company to learn how to run meetings and attend them. And then I wrote The Miracle Morning for Entrepreneurs that I co-authored with Hal Elrod. And I wrote a book called Vivid Vision, which is just the missing piece for all entrepreneurial companies to articulate a vision so that all the employees, shareholders you know, customers can rally behind a shared vision. And it's not a one-sentence statement. It's a five-page document. And then free PR that I actually co-authored with one of my former CEOs that I used to coach, Adrian Solomonovich, who is the CEO of Canvas Pop and DNA11. He's had a couple of good exits. I had the original manuscript for free PR written. I sent it over to Adrian to get his thoughts on it. He said I was missing a bunch around digital PR. So I asked him to co-author it. And we came out with that book two years ago to huge success. It's game changing. I cannot wait to dive in. But first and foremost, I've got Amazon up. I'm bookmarking all these because I got to go and read them all. These all are such interesting topics, especially Miracle Morning, you know, is a life changing program. And you co wrote the entrepreneurial version with Hal Elrod. That's amazing. 
Yeah, Hal and I, I've invested in my own growth for the last 20 years. I've been going to different mastermind groups and been members of different mastermind groups. And every time I'm in one, I end up getting a 10 to 100x return on my investment. So I joined the Genius Network years ago as one of the four that I was in. And Hal was a member of the Genius Network. And he approached me at lunch one day and asked me if I would co-author the book with him. I said, yeah, like happily. So we co-authored it and it's the of all of the books in the miracle morning series it's the second highest seller the highest seller is the, the original miracle morning and then miracle morning for entrepreneurs is number two network marketers is, is kind of we go back and forth every month okay you're up against them but that's so that's amazing okay i'm burning up amazon right now i'm getting all these my books are different from most business books like most business books give you the theory and then they kind of expect you to figure out how to do it. Whereas I'm so used to writing franchise manuals for, so that franchisees can execute. that I tend to write all of my books as a how-to guide. Like free PR talks about PR, but it teaches you how to go get it. And then once you get it, how to leverage it. You know, we, were, we landed 5,200 stories, individual unique stories about 1-800-GOT-JUNK prior to social media even existing. You know, we were on Oprah, I, but I've been in the physical print edition of every major business magazine. Like you can name them and I can tell you that I've been in probably every one that you come up with. And all of those, those stories you can then leverage now by sharing them on social media and driving traffic towards it, sharing it with your board, your suppliers, your customers. My SEO is huge just because of all the press that links to my media page. And it's, it's laid out, like you said, it's almost like a manual. It's a step-by-step guide to be able to do this. But this is so interesting because, you know, from coming in without a lot of knowledge about PR, it just it really blew my mind about how this is all structured. And obviously, 1-800-JUNK, I mean, we just had 1-800-GOT-JUNK in here the other day. They charged us an arm and a leg <laughs> to take Good. out a bunch Good. of stuff. But Good. so hopefully, you're still getting some... <laughs> well, let- you know, yeah. I'm saying, let me tell you why I'm saying good, because I think it's a really important lesson. So one of the very, very first things I did in the first week I was at the company was I recognized that none of the employees were getting paid very well. The owner wasn't making any money. None of the franchisees were making any money. And I did some modeling and I realized that we just weren't charging enough. And I was like, why are we trying to be the Walmart of junk removal when what we should be is the Starbucks or the FedEx of junk removal? And so I got the company to change their prices And we raised our prices by 40% overnight. And they were all terrified of like, no one's going to use this. We're going to be so expensive. I'm like, who cares? We're going to go bankrupt as we are today. Like we may as well go out swinging. And because we raised our prices, we were able to pay our guys in the truck more. We were able to hire better people internally. Our franchisees were happy and they were making money. So then they told other people who bought more franchises. And it became this kind of upward spiral instead of the downward death spiral. And yeah, we're supposed to be more expensive. But, you know, I built another company called College Pro Painters, which was the world's largest residential house painting company. I hired Kimball Musk to work for me in 1993. That's one of the reasons why I ended up being a reference for Elon in his first round of funding in January of 95 for Zip2 was Kimball Musk worked for me at College Pro Painters, as did his brother who built solar, cousin who built Solar City, Peter Reeve. You know, we were a premium house painting business, even though it was run by students, but you could go get the old guys, the pros, you know, the old Polish guys who've been painting houses for 30 years, they'd be 30% cheaper, but they couldn't market against us because we had the, the marketing and sales and systems down, we could charge a premium. 
Wow. Okay. And it was a seamless experience and it was a great experience. You know, yeah, of course. Yeah. It felt modern and real. I would have no idea. There's like five guys with trucks driving around that just says, I'll haul your junk, you know, but I went right to 1 800 got junk. Of course. We, and it you was know, seamless. We it. Yeah. We did it. You know, you can go get a coffee at a gas station or make coffee at home, or, or you can go to like a corner store and get a coffee for two bucks, or you can go to Starbucks and pay five. Or now you can go to like some hipster coffee place and pay seven fifty. But what happens is we get sucked into these beautiful brands and vortexes, and it's a choice. Companies have to make a choice as to whether they want to play in the Walmart category or whether they want to play in the mid. You know, which category are you playing in? Yeah, and and okay, so I know that I'm I'm all over the place, but tell me about the vision, your vision book, because I read a little bit about that, and I think that's kind of. That's where you start, right? With the company, you're like, okay, we need to figure out where we want to go. Yeah, it's like a jigsaw puzzle, right? Okay. Building a business is like a jigsaw puzzle. And if you can't see the picture on the front of the box, how are you possibly going to build the puzzle? It's going to take you forever because you don't know what you're, you can't, you know, you know what I mean? Like you got to see where all the colors go to get the pieces to fit. But when you're building a jigsaw puzzle, you start with the four corners of the jigsaw puzzle. For me, the vivid vision is the picture on the front of the box. And then the four corners of the jigsaw puzzle are your core purpose, your core values, your BHAG, that Jim Collins, big, hairy, audacious goal term that everybody screws up, and, they, and I can explain that. And then the fourth corner is your one-year plan to make the vivid vision start to come true. And then the four sides of your jigsaw puzzle are all the people systems, the strategic thinking systems, which is different from strategic planning. You can't have strategic planning. You've got strategy and planning are two different things. So strategic thinking systems. Then you have your meeting rhythms, which include your planning. And then you have your financial systems. And then in the center of the jigsaw puzzle are all the kind of colorful pieces. That's all your culture stuff. That's how I picture every business that I help scale. Okay. And so do they have this when you go in? I mean, is it just, it's like a sentence, right? I mean, but you're really... No, when most companies have a vision statement, they've got that one sentence statement where they've maybe pulled six words together and mashed them up into a sentence and they're like, go team. And that doesn't do anything. Like we're all like, that's hokey. It doesn't mean anything. We don't get it. What I'm talking about, a vivid vision becomes a five page document that describes every aspect of your company three years in the future. It describes how your company looks, how your company feels, how your company acts. It describes what your customers are saying about you. It describes what your employees are saying about you. It describes your meeting rhythms, describes your leadership team, describes how you use dashboards. It talks about your culture. It describes marketing and operations and IT and finance and engineering. It's a real description as if you're walking around your company describing what you see without knowing how it comes true. And then once you know what it's going to look like in three years and you share that with everybody, you know, you get a a writer to help polish it and make it pop off the page and you add some design elements to it. I can share a copy of one as an example, like my CO Alliance Vivid Vision, if you want. But once people can see what you're building, then you can figure out the plan, right? The one-year plan to help start making it come true. And you obsess about the four corners first, the core values, the core purpose, and the BHAG. Got it. Okay. And then, so BHAG, you hear that big, hairy, audacious goal, but how is it misinterpreted by people? So when Jim Collins wrote about the big, hairy, audacious goal, he talked about it needing to be a 20 or a 30 year stretch. And it needed to feel impossible from the outside world, but plausible from the inside, right? The employees on the inside go, yeah, we could, we could probably make this happen. But from the outside world, it feels impossible. It's also not supposed to be a measured 
statement of the number of people or dollars. So what people are doing now is I want to impact a billion lives or I want to have a million customers. That's not a BHAG. The examples of BHAGs are Nike in 1972. Nike's BHAG was to crush Adidas. I mean, in 1972, that was ludicrous that they were going to crush Adidas. Adidas owned the sporting world. Nike was a nobody company out of Beaverton, Oregon, like as if they were going to actually, well, from the inside, they saw it and they rallied and they pushed, right? Another great example of a BHAG was Microsoft's BHAG in the 80s was to put a computer on every desktop. And then about 10 years later in the mid 90s, they said, and in every household. That was that driving force. But what's cool is Microsoft never made computers. But the big, hairy, audacious goal that they were pushing towards was if they created cool software like Outlook and Excel and Word and Maps, et cetera, they would actually create a need for these devices, which their operating system, DOS, powered. So their BHAG was pushing. So my BHAG is to replace vision statements with vivid visions worldwide. Are you seeing the examples? What most people screw up is they say, I'm going to have a million customers. That's just a big goal. Or a revenue number. I'm going to, right. you know, or revenue a number. billion so at dollars. At 1-800-GOT-JUNK, our BHAG was to create a globally admired brand. Now, when we set that back in 2000, people thought we were crazy. But from the inside, we're like, no, we can do this. Like, we can create a cult. Like, we can have a, we can have a business that's a little bit more than a business, a little bit less than a religion. We can get into that cult zone. And we can get pressed to talk about how good we are. And we can become a great call center. You know, we won call center of the year in 2004. We beat out all the call center companies, even though we were a junk business. In 2006, we won the International Franchise Association Award for the number one franchisor in the world because we had a 98% franchisee net promoter score. So we were clearly good in the franchising space. We ranked as the number two company in all of Canada to work for, beating out 1.46 million companies. So we were clearly a, a great business. You know, so all of these things, you know, we were on Oprah. So all of this stuff was us driving towards it, driving towards it, driving towards it. They're still not done, right? Globally admired brand means, you know, they're at 450 million now. I think you got to get over the billion mark before you, a billion in revenue, not, at, not in value, but a billion in revenue. They're at 450 million in revenue. I think when you get to that, you start hitting that globally admired brand category. But that's been a 20-year push already for them. That's a BHAG. That's a BHAG. Okay, I got my BHAG for 10 bound. Hire you. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, I know that I can't afford you right now, but someday that's where we're going to get to. You know, this is why I coach companies. They, they, <laughs> no one, you can't afford to hire me, but, but people can afford to have me coach them. It's irresponsible. It's funny, the way I actually coach companies now is I have my fee for coaching, but three years after my coaching ends, they have to send me a bonus check for what they feel coaching was really worth. Oh my gosh, that's so interesting. Yeah. Yeah, because the reality is that the value that I give them, it's, I thought about this in the franchising world, that the franchisee gets all their value from the franchise manual and franchise training and then some of the franchise coaching in the first year or so. Afterwards, it becomes diminishing returns. Like our guy, Paul Guy, who's been a franchisee for 21 years at 1-800-GOT-JUNK, he's now an $80 million franchisee. His franchise... He owns New York, Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane, and Toronto. Like he, he's doing, 80, he doesn't learn anything from the company anymore, but he's paying $6.4 million in royalties every year. So Paul, if you said to Paul, 
what was the franchise? Like I recruited him from college pro painters and told him to quit his $42,000 job and come and come and join 1-800-GOT-JUNK. If I was to say 20 years later, hey, Paul, what was that worth to you? He'd be like millions. But if I had an emotional contract saying, I need you in 20 years to write me a check for what you feel it was worth for you, he'd probably send me a million dollar check. And, and this is all by a handshake that you have with clients. And, wow. and by the way, I didn't mean hire you. It's just, you know, get your company or, you know, <laughs> bring you in to help us because we need help. I, I, and I laugh. Yeah. Every time somebody says hire me, I laugh because Brian at 1-800-GOT-JUNK said he wanted to hire me. I'm like, that would be like kissing my sister. I'm never going to work for you. And then <laughs> six and a half years later, it's like we were making out every day. Oh, man. Yeah, it's, I don't ha- I've never had a contract with any of my clients in 13 years. I've had no contracts for any speaking events. I've done over 700 speaking events. Even when I coach Sprint, and, I, and again, I coach the CEO and the second in command, I coached the CEO at Sprint for 18 months. We had no contracts, nothing in writing. Wow. So you just do a hand, you know, handshake, digital handshake now. And then you just say, look, pay me what you think it's worth. And, well, and, they, yeah. pay me month, they pay me monthly anyway. Like my, my coaching is 48000 a year. They pay 24000 up front and then 2000 a month for 12 months. So they, they're paying me, but that's the base fee, right? I'm like, that's just, that's just cost of entry. The bonus is how you're really thanking me later. So they know at the end of every call that in, you know, as soon as they stop coaching three years after that, they write a check. Nice. <laughs> Wow. Okay. That's, that's amazing. Okay. So that's my BHAG. I'm going to work on that now. Okay. So say they go through the, they, they've got their vivid vision, right? The company's working pretty well. Now they need to go into the media space. And I know I've, been, I've got so many questions for you. I want to do like tons of interviews, but in the, in the free PR book, Tell us about how, this process because this really blew my mind. So, so I learned this back in 1986. So 34 years ago, I was running a house painting business. I was 21. I had 12 employees. So I was in second year university and I owned my own company. And I remember phoning a newspaper one day. I saw an article in the newspaper. I'm like, that's a stupid story. Like there's nothing there. It's just like they're covering some business guy. I'm like, I'm a business guy. So I phoned the same writer, a guy named Tom Hewlett. Tom Hewlett. Wow. 34 years ago. I called this guy, Tom Hewlett. I called the Sudbury star and I said, hi, is Tom Hewlett there? And, and you know, the receptionist or whatever back then said, no, he's not. I said, can you leave a message? They said, sure. So Tom Hewlett phoned me later that day and I was at home and I took the call and he said, Hey, it's Tom Hewlett calling from the Sudbury star. What's up? I said, Oh, I've got a, I think I have a really good story for you. Do you have two minutes? He said, sure. And I just pitched him on the story. I said, you know, I'm a university student and there weren't a lot of jobs this summer. So I decided to start my own business. And now I've got 12 employees. And I think you could inspire a lot of other kids to start their own business instead of crying about the job market. He goes, this is a cool story. I go, you know, it'd be a really cool photo would be to come and get a picture of me and a bunch of my employees because we're all students and we'll all have like our 1-800-GOT-JUNK logos on and we could be like hanging off ladders. He goes, I love it. Where, Where are you guys working? And I gave him an address and said, why don't you come like in an hour and I'll meet you there. He goes, I can't do it in an hour, but I can be there in two hours. I'm like, great. So that was the first story. And then a week later, I called the TV station and they covered me. And then it was just like, this isn't hard. So what I realized was every media outlet, whether it's a blogger, a podcaster, or a magazine, or a newspaper, or a radio station, whatever, every single media outlet makes their money one way and one way only. And that's from advertising. And the only way they sell advertising is by having more viewers or more readers or more listeners. So they need good content to attract their audience. 
So you're actually doing them a favor if you're giving them good content because they can't afford to go out and spend money to go get the content. And they're spending, nowadays, they're spending all day long reading 200 emails a day or reading 200 press releases they get. There's so much clutter that if you pick up the phone and call them and say, hey, do you have two minutes? I think I have a good story for you. You're either going to get them on the phone and they'll probably say yes because they only get four phone calls a day. Or if you get their voicemail, you just leave a message saying, hey, it's Cameron calling. I think I've got a good story for you. Here's my phone number. Give me a call back and I'll walk you through it. And you're just trying to get them on the phone. And when you have them on the phone, you give them the angle and the supporting points. And I document this out step by step in the book. And so the vision that you have of reporters is that they're going out, they're digging up stories, you know, they're doing the footwork. But what was interesting in the book is that that media landscape has changed. And now, you know, you can actually contact them as you learned and have a story ready to go that they can just do some editing and and post. Yeah. It's the reality is the days of the, the Peter Parker investigative journalist trying to go out and find Spider-Man and do the story. Those days are gone and you can't afford to pay somebody's salary to have them out there poking around all day looking for a story. And now because of the internet, a lot of writers are bashing out three to four stories a day. So they need that path of least resistance. And if they're going to spend all day long with 200 emails saying, no, 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 maybe, no, 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 maybe, no, yes. Why the hell do you want to be one out of 200? And if their phone only rings four times, you've got a 25% chance that they're going to listen to you. Like the odds are so much better. So I've been pitching via phone for 34 years, but now it's getting even better because no one's ever picking up the phone. So you just leave them a voicemail and with your strategy. How do you, how do you come up with the strategy so that you're not one of the 200 no's? You know, once you do get them on the phone, what's your strategy to make them want to engage with you? The first strategy is to not tell them the story until you've got them on the phone because then they can't say no, right? Uh, yeah. Like, I'm not, like, I'm, we're, not, we're not, like, you kind of play a little hard to get, right? Like, I'm not going to give you the story. Get on the phone and I'll walk you through the story. So then you have to know your angle. So your angle is kind of the story headline. So one of my story headlines right now is no CEOs allowed. And people are like, what do you mean no CEOs allowed? I'm like, yeah, I have a group or it's a mastermind group where no CEOs allowed or, you know, a group where no CEOs are allowed in the door. That's a headline that is catchy. And then they'll be like, well, what do you mean? Well, I have a group that's only for second in commands. There's about 80 groups for entrepreneurs. Second in commands and entrepreneurs are different. So I give them kind of the five bullet points about the story. And then they go, that's interesting. Like, and you just kind of go from there. Or they go, I don't really like that story. And you go, well, I've got, this, I've got another one. What do you think about, about the fact that Elon Musk told everybody to walk out of meetings one day and I send him a text message saying, no, fix the meeting and they won't have to walk out of shitty meetings. And they go, that's interesting. So then I'll sell them the meeting story. So I have five stories always, right? I have five story and every, I could create a story for every one of your companies in a second, but every company has five core stories that they can grow. And then you can do the same story city by city by city. Got it. Okay. And so there's these, the reporters, how do you get in touch with them though? Because they, they must have a lot of layers in between because they're trying to, you know, get the noise, you know. The layers aren't there anymore. There used to be receptionists. Companies operate without receptionists now. Most reporters have cell phones. Most reporters' cell phones are either online or they're in databases like Cision or Muckrack or Media Atlas where you can subscribe to them. But there's no gatekeeper anymore. There's no one who's screening phone calls. 
So it's actually much easier to get a hold of people. You can also pitch them really quickly on Twitter or on Facebook, and you just send them a quick note and say, hey, do you have two minutes? I think I have a great story for you. And they'll be receptive to that because they need that quality content. So there's yeah, a lot of want, content. Want, yeah. Uh-huh. It's kind of like in grade 10. I remember in grade 10 English, the teacher stood up one day and she said, okay, you've got 30 minutes. You have to write a story. I'm like, fuck up a story about what? <laughs> <laughs> tell, me, tell me I have to write a story about a bronze statue or a story about a guitar or a story about a Christmas tree and I can write a story. But to just say write a story, I'm like, God, I don't know what to write about. So writers every day, these journalists just want something to write about. That's all you're doing is giving them something cool to write about. And then with your five stories, as you're starting to think about how to do this, with the five stories, does it have to be, I know that you went into this on the book, but it has to be the media outlet that speaks to that audience. So you got to make sure that you've got the right audience well, and you're story. speaking. To, yeah. Yeah. The first is your stories and then there's the audience. So I'll give you an example of my five stories. So I have a story of overcoming adversity, right? It's how I got a massive tax bill. And then three months later, my wife decided she wanted a divorce and how I, the business almost crumbled because of that and how I recovered. So I have that kind of overcoming adversity story, right? Or I have my, my kind of the Genesis story. Like, how did I start the COO Alliance? So I have like my startup story. And then I have my story about how my business, the COO Alliance, has helped second in command. So I can talk about how it's helped the COO for college hunks or how it's helped the COO for Organifi or how it helped the COO for you know, media temple. So I have my, my customer success story. And then I have my story about culture, right? And, and how to create a cult and that world-class kind of brand. You have a story about that and what the culture is not about the massages and the free lunch. And then I have my story about leveraging technology and how I've coached companies all over the world using technology, like real companies. Like I've coached, you know, a country. I coach the guy who owns the, the country of Qatar. They're, they're an absolute monarchy. And how you leverage technology to coach businesses globally. So those are five stories. Now, if I take a story like the you know, COO Alliance helping a customer, every media outlet is different. And this is what you were asking. If I think about Forbes, Fortune, you know, CNN, the Entrepreneur Magazine, Success Magazine, they're all very different media outlets, right? So I have to think about, well what customer would Forbes care about? They're probably not going to care about college hunks falling junk, but Forbes might care about the fact that I have the second in command for the Cleveland Indians or the second in command for Wikipedia or the second in command for carparts.com. You know, how, what have we done to help brands that are bigger, more Forbesy? And then if I was covering, you know, if I was going after Entrepreneur Magazine or Inc. Magazine, they would love the college hunks hauling junk member story and how, you know, the 1-800-GOT-JUNK competitor was a member of the CO Alliance, like gasp, oh my gosh, you know, that's their story, right? So it's the same story, but it's me understanding the target audience and how to position the story for their audience so their audience cares. Got it. And what was interesting too is that there's a traditional PR industry that's out there. So there's, there's all these agencies that will charge you an arm and a leg to be doing this. But I felt like after reading this, this is something that you could do you know, somebody that doesn't have a PR background. Well, I have three of my former employees that I hired and trained and, and worked for me in PR at 1-800-GOT-JUNK that all own their own PR companies today. Um, one of them has 80 employees in PR and they do a great job. But again, you're paying a PR firm six or $7,000 a month is the starting rate. 
and you get one employee on your account, maybe two, but the reality is you're not getting them full time because to pay for themselves, they have to have four or five clients. So you're really only getting them for one or one and a half days a week. So why are you paying $80,000 a year for somebody one and a half days a week? You could hire a full-time PR person, starting salaries for PR people are 50 grand a year. You could hire a full-time person just to pitch you five days a week for 50 grand a year. It's irresponsible to use a PR firm. That's crazy. Because most entrepreneurs don't know how to do it, then yes, it makes sense to outsource it because you have no idea what you're doing, but I'm giving it to you right here in the book. Just follow the instructions. Literally, like no joke, like it's step-by-step in here. And then the benefits of this. So we, we talked about this before, but you know, what you did at 1-800-GOT-JUNK, you know, with the media mentions and the SEO and, and all the benefits that come out of it, what's the end game for doing this? Well, the end game is that every story is just like a log on a fire. So even though we were on Oprah, nobody cares. Like after two days, that story's gone. So what are you going to do with that story? So the real end game is understanding how to take each story. I'll give you the analogy. Let's say that every story you get is just like a log, like a piece of wood, right? Well, I got five stories. Now I got five pieces of wood all just sitting there. I got to light them on fire. Otherwise, they're not doing much. So you take all of your stories and you put them on your media page of your website. So if you go to the Cameron Herald website and look at the media page, or you go to the CEO Alliance website and look at the media page, you'll see story after story after story covering me. Those are all linking back to my website. So those are really helping my SEO. I also post every story on Facebook and LinkedIn and Twitter. And then we share some of the stories with my speakers bureaus that, that book me for speaking. So I send it out to my, my customers in the CEO Alliance so they see how successful we are. So you're kind of sharing it. That's how you're lighting the logs on fire. But now I'm like, wow, what if you poured gas on the fire? Like, could you really turn this thing into a raging bonfire? Well, that's when you share every story five times on LinkedIn, five times on Facebook. You email it to all of your customers. You email it to your suppliers. You get your employees to share it on their social pages. You create quick links that people can click on it to be able to share it on their social profiles for you. And then you drive ad traffic towards it. So you actually target your current, you know, the customers that you want and you push your articles in front of those customers so they see it and then they actually are getting retargeted as well. So then all of a sudden your brand is omnipresent. That's the power of the digital trifecta. But again, most companies don't understand. And most PR firms won't do any of that. They'll land you a bunch of stories. They'll hand you a bunch of logs. But that doesn't, it's not what grows your business. Right. Because more and more, you know, there's, there's more content out there. there. There's so many stories that are coming through. It's easy to just land you something and then move on. And you don't get any of the fire from the log, it seems. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. This is so interesting. So, and one of the things that's in the book too, is there's downloads of like a job description. So, you know, instead of spending all the money on the PR firm, you hire someone, you've got an actual job description for what they could do. And they could do a lot of the, the things, you know, beyond just getting the story into the media, they can tie those loose ends together for you. Yeah, your PR is supposed to be tied with your marketing and your sales team. So it's supposed to be part of the puzzle on how you're going to target your clients. And I like hiring really good young salespeople who like to pick up the phone, can handle rejection, they can manage a sales funnel, you know, they can manage multiple prospects and leads because really they're in the job of sales. The product is a story, right? And they, they have to close stories. So if, if they're pitching people, you know, for a couple hours a day, five days a week, they're going to land five or six stories a month. It's easy. 
Got it. Okay. So it's a totally different, you know, you mentioned they sit in, I mean, back when we actually had offices, <laughs> like they sit in with the sales and marketing team as part of, you know, to get their plans, get the buzz and integrate what they're doing with the sales and marketing team. Don't put them over in the HR or, you know, operations side where they usually are, right? Yeah, I like having the, the PR people to sit very close to the CEO as well. So they're vibrating the same residence as the CEO. So that they're hearing what's going on. They're kind of around the sales and marketing arena because they need to be buzzing with that same vibration. This is so interesting. I saw this play out 10 years ago when I was at Glassdoor. The CEO and the PR person worked very closely together. They were always you know, meeting and and. Now, now it all makes sense. Okay. So from, you know, a lot of the folks that listen are in the tech space. So if you were working with a software company and they, they, you know, there's so many software companies that are always releasing these things, you know, yet another, you know, software release, like how do you stand out in that, in that world? You've got some of those fundamental principles. Yeah. I'm actually speaking to a SaaS group next week. So what you do in this in the software world again is very similar. You can get this the startup story, right? So like how did the founder of grasshopper.com quit his shitty job and start? Or how did the founder of iContext quit his shitty job and start? Or how did the guy decide to start Glassdoor? How did you know Peter Thiel decide to start PayPal? There's always the founder story. And then then you have your second story about how is your software helping your customer. So whatever your software is, let's say it's a you know, a meeting software like Stormboard, where you can collaborate online, or a Milo, where you, Miro, where you can actually collaborate and, and brainstorm online with remote teams. Well, talk about how your software is helping a customer in San Francisco and phone all the media outlets in San Francisco to get the story about your customer in San Francisco being helped by the software. And then the next week, call everybody in Dallas and talk about a Dallas customer who's benefiting from the software. And then the next week, spend a week and phone everybody in Boston, et cetera. You can do 50 weeks in a year covering 50 different cities. And it's the same story, different week, but you're covering a different customer. But it's the same story. It's the same pitch. Most people get tired and they want another angle. There's no more angles, man. It's like you get one phone, go sell that phone for the next year. We're not going to give you another phone every day to sell. We're not going to give you a new version. What's interesting, though, is that it's so scalable with software, right? Because like you just said, if you've got Miro, you know, with somebody in San Francisco, it's all over the world. So in each of those cities, there's a media outlet that you can I'll, you, I'll give you two examples of software that I've coached and, and that I'm advisors to. One is called 15.5. Yes, so 15.5 I know them. Area. So I taught them how to leverage PR. So all of the PR that David Hassel is getting, they've been getting because of my systems and, and it's helped them raise significant money. It's helped them build brand. Their SEO is strong. And a lot of their PR is about their customers using their software. Another company that I coach is called Tiny Pulse. Again, another software company. I taught them when they had one employee, actually before one employee, it was just David New, the CEO, the founder. And this was eight years ago. Taught him about PR. He's landed hundreds of stories about PR. And then when they share that, the key is they take those stories and they share them on social media. They drive them towards their customers. They share them with their investors. But if you're getting 20 stories about your company and you're sharing it with your VCs, your VCs are excited. And if they're not seeing stories from all their other investment groups, which ones do you think they're going to start funding more? The one who's got the buzz. 100%. You got the, you got the momentum there. And, and it's interesting. Somewhere I've got a Slack case study of how Slack started. And I feel like they integrated some of these systems as well. Because suddenly, 
you know, nobody had heard of Slack. And then the next day, it's like everybody in the world's using Slack. It's like, what just happened? That's something to do with the, their strategy. So Cameron, this is amazing. I cannot recommend this book enough for folks that are new to this or if you've been in it for a while. And if you're at a PR agency, you better get it too because they're coming for you. I mean, you could do it in-house. But Cameron, I want to do this again. Thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing your wisdom with us. Oh, you're so welcome. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. And yeah, if you ever want to have me back to cover any of the other content, we've got lots we can share for sure. 100%. Dude, I'm going to Amazon right now. I'm getting these because all of them sound super interesting. So we'll get you back on for sure. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the Sales Development Podcast, the only audio forum 100% focused and dedicated to sales development with your host, David Delaney. Please be sure to subscribe to the show on YouTube and take a moment to leave us a review on iTunes. Your support makes our show possible. If you are struggling with your sales development program, contact us at 10bound.com for a no-obligation exploratory call. Again, that's 10bound.com.